Welcome to Free Thoughts. I'm Trevor Burris. And I'm Aaron Powell. Joining us today is Kevin Curry-Knight, teaching associate professor at East Carolina University's College of Education. His new book is Education in the Marketplace, an intellectual history of pro-market libertarian visions for education in 20th century America. Welcome back to Free Thoughts, Kevin. Thank you, Trevor. Thank you, Aaron. Why write a book about like doing the overview of pro-market libertarian ideas in education, I guess, and why write it now? Uh, well, I've always been really interested in the idea that education, unlike other goods and services, is not only something the government funds, but is something that the government provides. And one of the groups that has been really interesting and very consistent in their criticism of government's role in education has been uh, market libertarians, so people who believe that goods and services of all sorts should be given through the free market. Um, another interesting thing about that is that most libertarians, especially when they're kind of writing a, like a theory of what a libertarian world would look like, education is a, a part of it, but it usually is like a chapter or a subchapter. So what I really wanted to do is take all of these little chapters and subchapters and, and small essays that, that these folks wrote and kind of synthesize them into a history. Like how do all of these flow together? How are different people's arguments, uh, similar or different? Or affected by um, their approach to libertarianism overall. Has education always been public education? No, it, it hasn't. Um, now, I guess I can limit my comments mostly to the United States because that's what the book is about and that's what I'm most familiar with. Um, but really education at the what we'd call the K-12 level, which is also itself a new idea, um, has generally been private up until we'll say kind of the early 1800s. So uh, even in the north, uh, the um, northeastern states, where it was kind of a more, um, they were quicker to make it public education. It was very much a local affair, to the point where basically each town uh, would get volunteers and stuff to raise a building on on government land that would be a school, um, and the 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 town would basically fund that school. But it would not be like. Um, it wouldn't be exclusively public. So there'd be a lot of private schools potentially around an area and people were still relatively free to kind of go wherever they saw fit. Um, and even the early public schools were largely, um, I guess, organized and sustained by what we call rate bills, which are basically a, a way to say tuition. So it was maybe partially publicly funded by the town money, but each person who sent their children would send some sort of tuition. And then it was really kind of in the middle 1800s, largely speaking, where that went away and we got kind of fully public funded education. And it's interesting you focus on 20th century America. So it's more or less in place by 20th century America by the 20th century, but also not fully in place. Like the first guy you profile, Albert J. Nock, uh, I think died in the 50s, if I'm correct, or somewhere around there. Um, and so he, he was looking at an education system that was even more decentralized than I think what we have today in terms of school districts and large school districts over many over big counties. It was still a developing thing then. Right. Yeah. So uh, even in the early 20th century, so the last uh, state in the union, I think it was Arkansas, to make public education kind of something that, that was kind of mandatory in terms of what the state provides was in 1918. So even in the brief area of that early 20th century, you still – there were some states that still didn't have like a system of public education that was kind of you know mandated that you have by the states. Um, but even then, I mean, one of the consistent things I've seen in histories of K-12 education is that even when you did have public education systems, 
Um, and even when you had like compulsory attendance laws, for instance, um, it wasn't always enforced very well. Uh, you know, states would kind of mandate compulsory ed laws, uh, compulsory attendance laws, and wasn't wasn't terribly well enforced. Uh, I don't know quite when, or I, know, I didn't get a sense for quite when states really started enforcing those laws. But so even when there was a public system, um, you know, whether whether kids really went into that public system is uh, depends on the state that was trying to enforce those laws. You mentioned K-12 and when we're talking about this history of public education, there's there's public education in the sense of you know publicly provided, publicly funded um, and we talked about when, when that came in. But the, the kind of uniform structure of public education as we imagine it now, the, the K through 12 with elementary school and middle school and high school and the grade levels and so on. Did that come along at the same time or when did when did we get that kind of rigid structure that we all went through? Right. So um, my memory on this isn't going to be so great. So I can probably talk in terms of decades. Um, so really when the first public schools or what we called common schools came into effect, uh, first of all, they didn't really have grade levels. That was something that happened maybe in the 1870s, 1880s is when you first started seeing grade levels. But they were really mostly for what we would call primary education. So it was more typical that kids would go there to learn the things that we would learn today in primary education. So basic reading, basic math, basic writing, um, they would learn, you know, how to, how to, you know, um, basic civics stuff, maybe. Um, high school, my understanding is that high school came kind of about next. That was in the early 20th century. And then when we kind of discovered or invented, depending on your perspective, the idea of adolescence uh, in, you know, 1920s, somewhere around there is kind of when middle school became a thing. So it's these three really didn't develop in, in lockstep. It was really first primary. Uh, then high schools were kind of created for people who are kind of going to go into the learned professions, into college. And then middle school kind of became its own thing in, you know, the, the 20s into the 30s. I like how you talked about inventing adolescence because this is obviously very much tied up with how much wealth there is that allows kids to, say, not wake up at, you know, six-year-olds to not wake up and milk the cows every day uh, and then go to school instead and how how long they can do that, um, whether or not you're going to school from six to – ages six to nine, but then you're done or you're already going to go through teenagers and be able to lay about until you're 18. Which is an interesting, uh, interesting variation. But let's go to let's get to uh, Albert J. Nock, um, the first thinker you profiled. So who who was Nock? Yeah, Albert J. Nock was a writer mostly for newspapers um, and kind of news magazines. Um, he is so it's interesting because I picked him as the first chapter of the book, reasoning that. Well, he was kind of a, a libertarian. He had a, you know, kind of in retrospect, we would call him a libertarian. He was very skeptical of the state. I mean, he and did he write a book a, called Our Enemy, the State. <laughs> right, right. And, yeah. And of course, then he wrote a book on education called uh, The Theory of Education in America. And I figured, okay, well, he's libertarian. He wrote a book on education. He must be, he must have very libertarian views on education. And uh, as I researched, I realized that that was kind of slightly a mistake. Um, because he was very pessimistic about the state's ability to provide good, truly educational experience. But he was also, it turns out, very skeptical of the private market to be able to provide educational experience. So he he was really just a flat-out pessimist. He didn't really think that anyone stood a great chance of, of uh, providing education. And the reason for that is he, I guess, yeah, we would call him an elitist. That's That's fair. And I think he would probably even agree to that term. 
um, because he thought that education and training were very different things. Education was this thing that was very difficult to do. It was very hard won. Um, it, you know, it, you, you learn about kind of high culture, the best that's been thought and written. And he thought the government wouldn't be very good at providing that because the government, especially in a democratic uh, society, uh, really caters to kind of what he would call the you know the lowest common denominator, the bathos, I think, was the term that he used. Um, so he thought that really the state could maybe provide training uh, for people, but it wasn't going to provide education for the folks who were capable of it. But then he turns to the private market and says, well, okay, but the private market uh, also has its own constraints because you have to get people to voluntarily pay for your service. And if people have a choice between um, cheap and easy education that's not really education, it's more like just training, um, or an education that's really hard won and it's really difficult to obtain, uh, people are going to pay for the cheap and easy. They're not going to pay for the difficult. So he thought that if there was a private company or private companies that came along and offered education, uh, they probably wouldn't survive very long because they would have a hard time getting customers. So this is why reality TV has more better ratings than Masterpiece Theater. Right. right. Well, it's, it's funny because, um, I mean, he really in some ways is predating the arguments that are made by critics of private education today because uh, some critics will say that, well, private education uh, can't be really good because it's, it's going to cater to what people are willing to pay for, right? And people are going to pay for the cheap and the easy. Uh, it, so coming from an com entirely different worldview is a lot of the critics – Today, he's making, in, in some ways, a similar critique of of market education. But I mean, even as far away as he lived, we America had quite a lot of colleges and universities, um, and presumably people were paying tuition for those. So, did, doesn't that clash with the story he's telling? Yeah, it might. I mean, he he believes again. I, he's an elitist, and in, in the truest sense of the word, he really believed that there was a small minority of people who were capable of receiving and, and wanted to receive an education. So I don't know if he addressed that argument head on, but I think he would say something like, well, even those universities are really confined to a, a small part of the market uh, because they, they can really only take a small uh, part of the marketplace. On the normative side, though, should we be concerned with what he was concerned with? Uh, I mean, I, I don't doubt, as someone who's against public education, I don't doubt that the revealed preferences of consumers will not be in line with my desire to read Shakespeare and, and do some other high-minded things. But right. is that something we should be concerned with? I think it's an interesting argument and especially in light of um, the book, The Case Against Education by Brian Kaplan. And there's other books that have come to similar kind of arguments that argue that really the great value in education, especially at the college level, is in that credential. And whether people learn anything, it turns out that they don't really learn a whole lot of stuff. They learn it to get the credential and you know quickly forget it and and such. It's an interesting argument in light of that because I think I think Nock would say you know that kind of confirms what he's saying and that education has become much more about training and for credential because so few people really want to spend that time and money and energy getting an education. I don't know if it's a, a conclusive or decisive argument. I mean, there are cases in markets where you have um, kind of a conflict between, you know, companies obviously wanting business, but companies wanting to maintain some sort of rigorous standard. Um, so, you know, private schools, uh, any private school that becomes so watered down because it wants to expand its market share will probably fairly quickly acquire a really bad reputation because people will figure out that the people who are coming out of this school uh, probably aren't the best educated people. Uh, you know, like diploma mills. Diploma mills get caught 
pretty easily. It, it's pretty quick for the market to catch on. So I, I don't, I don't think it's a decisive argument, but I think it's an interesting one that, um, you know, advocates of markets and education should really take seriously. You, you describe him as a conservative in disposition, which it seems to be true. Mm, yeah. And yeah. Uh, this question we're discussing, it reminds me of a question that I've often asked when I think to differentiate between conservatives and libertarians, which is do conservatives uh, actually disagree with public education in principle or do they disagree with public education that they don't run and that they're mm -hmm. they're, they're for right. the idea but they don't like what's going on right now. Right. And it's right. kind of interesting because we're in this sort of realignment. So we had this national conservatism conference where conservatives are ditching all these principles and saying we shouldn't uh, sort of kowtow to classical liberal ideas and libertarianism that is subjective values and just says whatever people choose in the market is okay and that's fine. And now you'd think that maybe they would be for public education to sort of make people great again, to, to coin a phrase, I guess. Well, it's historically there's there's a lot of agreement on the idea that uh, for good or ill um, public education's purpose or it, you know has largely been to kind of create a nation in the way that particularly the state or the or you know the government or whomever or the public good if you want to call it that wants people to be right so so uh, the the there's there's folks who kind of wax philosophical on that it's like this is great because we need you know we need people to be good citizens uh, ed hirsch wrote a, a book defending public education called the making uh, what you, i think it's making of americans um, and he meant that literally like the great thing about public education is we're making americans uh, and then critics will say this is a really awful thing because if you want diversity and heterogeneity and stuff, uh, you know, public education is kind of designed to create citizens in a certain mold. So I guess to get to your to your comment there, it's like uh, it, it's interesting because most people jockey to try to get control of this institution um, and they don't like the institution when it's doing things they don't think should be done or molding people in a way they don't think should be molded. But then when they can get those reins of power and they can get a say in it. Uh, it turns out that what they really wanted was the institution to mold people the correct way. Your next thinker is uh, Frank Chodorov. Yeah. Uh, so he was a little different than Nock. I mean, he met Nock too. You, you point uh, out. He, he was the, he was a protege of Albert J. Nock. So he was a fellow newspaper writer. They wrote uh, for some of the same uh, magazines and um, yeah, Chodorov met Nock fairly early in his career and agreed with Nock on almost everything. So they were both philosophically anarchists. They both viewed the state as kind of the ultimate enemy. Um, they were both pro-market, although Nock was a lot more tepid uh, and cautious about markets than Chodorov was. So the big difference between them, and it really shows in what, how they viewed education and markets and education, is that Albert J. Nock was, um, was not, as Chodorov was, very uh, – shaped and influenced by the Austrian school of economics. So in Chodorov's writings, uh, Ludwig von Mises comes up a lot. And the, the interesting thing about that is Mises and other Austrians argue for what you call value subjectivism, which is that um, most of us think of economic things as having intri in some intrinsic value that you can get right or wrong. And uh, Mises and other Austrians said, no, that's really not how it works. Each person might value something completely differently and no one from the outside can say your valuation is wrong uh, because there is no objective value to point to. So where Nock was really pessimistic about 
the governor about markets coming in and offering education because Knox said, you know, there's good education and there's bad education. There's education that's valuable and there's not. Uh, Chodorov wasn't really able or willing to do that. He didn't say, you know, there's good education over here and there's bad education over there. He said, everyone's going to have their own preferences. Um, as much as I think someone's preferences are bad, that's only really my impression of their preferences. Um, but markets are way better at, at catering to people's preferences than the state would be. So where Nock was really pessimistic about that, um, Chodorov thought that that clearly markets were going to be superior because they would cater to the customers in a way that the state couldn't. There seems to be a, something odd about that argument. Let me see if I can just kind of tease this out. Um, preferences come out of some substrate in us, right? Like they're, they're not these just freely existing things that we just, you know, happen to have, but they're a result of who we are, our interests, our level of knowledge, particular skill sets lead to different preferences. And all of that stuff, the, the knowledge and the skill sets and, and what we know is, is education. And so education shifts, like being educated will shift your preferences. And so it seems odd to say, like, it's almost like the, the entire point of education or one of the major points of it is to help people to have preferences that they don't have right now and and that and that if it's working if education is working and accomplishing what it wants it's it's preferences that like once they're educated they look back and say i'm glad that i have the preferences i have now that the decisions i would have made before i was educated would have been bad for me so in retrospect they're glad for the education even if at the moment that they're getting it or they're being forced into it they're saying god i wish i was at home playing video games or that bad education can can change your preferences away. Like I was thinking about Nock and Chodorov here. Like I know so many people who like hate Shakespeare because of how it was taught to them in ninth grade, or like never want to read a classic ever again uh, because so that education, poor state education, changed their preferences away from these high minded ideals that maybe if someone could get them excited about these things, they would pursue the kind of things that Nock wanted them to pursue. Right. Yeah, I don't know what I th so I think what Chodorov would say to that, and I don't think he I don't think he looked at that objection, or at least I don't remember that he did. I think what he would say is it's really not a question of whether markets will get us to the right preferences if there are such a thing. It's who stands a better shot at getting us to those preferences, the state or markets. And I think for Chodorov, the decisive argument was pluralism. Um, he really, really liked the idea that markets were kind of a plurality. So different people could choose the types of schools that would be that would be um, maybe best for them and maybe you know, I wouldn't agree with their choice, but they, you know, they could kind of choose and rechoose. If a school didn't work for them, they could go to another one versus the state where it's kind of like, you know, one, one set of preferences kind of wins the day. Uh, you know, if you, if you don't like this particular kind of school, you can't really choose another kind of school because the state kind of owns the market. So I guess for him, it wouldn't be, you know, whether markets or the state will get you to the right set of preferences, but who who stands the better shot if there is such a thing as the right preferences? Um, I guess I guess my response, you know, not speaking as as any of the figures in the book, but my response to that is that I can I can certainly see the point, but I think when you flesh it out, the problem you're going to have is that um, every time you set this, the types of preferences that I think you should have, and we create the education that would get you there. It's always from someone's 
perspective. Like I get to choose the preferences that I think everyone should have. And therefore we're going to create education to this set of preferences. Uh, in other words, there's no neutral way to figure out what preferences someone should have or what preferences are appropriate for an educated person. Your next uh, figure is pretty different than Nock and Chodorov. Pro probably hated them. Uh, yeah. I mean, it's a good uh, yeah, bet. It's Ayn Rand. Uh, she, she had a very, uh, you know, even though she's the poster woman for libertarianism. She had a long enemies list. She hated libertarians. So, uh, I, well, it, it, was, it was hard for me to figure out whether to put her in the book for two reasons. First of all, I focus on kind of the American arguments and, and kind of American, like the American scene. And of course, she's technically, well, she wasn't American. She was an American citizen, but she was born, of course, in, in Russia. Um, but then the second thing, of course, is that she didn't really call herself in any way a libertarian. Uh, so I had to figure out like, okay, do I want to put her in a book about 20th century American market libertarians, given that she wasn't born in America and given that she didn't re refer to herself as libertarian? And I decided to for the reasons that she's usually included in most uh, libertarian discussions, which is that her positions were close enough to what are kind of standard libertarian positions on most things that I think you can call her a libertarian even if you say she kind of occupies a space of just tremendous overlap. Uh, now, there are things that she didn't overlap with. But yeah, I think in the end, I think um, I kind of had to put her in the book. But she, if she were alive, she'd write you an angry letter about how, how you included her in this book with all these people who were so wrong and morally benighted and, and irrational. She definitely would. But I would, I, would, I, would, I would mail her back a response that's just a Venn diagram, right? Here are the positions you take. Here are the positions others take in the book. Here are the things you don't have in common. As you can see, there's an 80 percent overlap. And of course, as you might expect, her view of education was, um, I mean, got to learn Aristotle and tap dancing and what else? What else would be in her school, Aaron? <laughs> Rationals, rational thought. Yeah, her view of education is actually really uh, surprising on two levels. First of all, in terms of what type of education she most preferred people to have. So she did have a type of education, unlike Frank Chodorov, which she thought was better than others. And it, I, I mean, for someone who's just looking at her basic views, you would guess that it's like this really rigorous, you know, education in, in reason and education in like the classics and Aristotle. But it's, it's actually a very more free education. It's a Montessori style education. And for those who aren't familiar with that, um, it's really not so much like a teacher led thing. It's really education by giving students kind of a, a room full of resources and, and learning toys and learning tools without really any um, overt interference from the teacher, which is really interesting. I, it, I found that to be a, uh, unexpected, I guess. And even though she was against compromise uh, in some sense uh, and sticking by your principles, she later supported tax credits. She did. This is a really interesting thing. And in the book, I, I, I never really answered the question of kind of how she reconciled this. So the type of education uh, system that she supported most was very similar to Frank Chodorov's, which was a tax credit system in education. And Frank Chodorov said very explicitly, um, this is kind of a compromised position. Chodorov said, in my ideal world, the state would have nothing to do with education. It wouldn't even fund education because even that is a slippery slope. This is really because we have a public system and we need to find a way to get to markets from a public system. So the best thing to do is create a, a kind of a compromise. So we would allow you to basically write off any money you spend in private tuition against your taxes. So you'd get a tax credit. Now, RAND doesn't really have that uh, 
ability philosophically because at about the time that she's supporting a tax credit system in education and she wrote an essay on it, uh, she had already written an essay on the um, dangers of compromising your your positions politically. So if you are against government, you should be against any sort of government in interference in policy that you are in theory. And she was against any but a minimal kind of night watchman state. So uh, she never really explained, you know, how to reconcile this. Uh, she wrote both essays very separately. Um, I suspect it was because at the time that she was writing the essay that she wrote on tax credits, there was a case going through the New York state courts, and she lived in New York at the time, that was testing the constitutionality of tax credits in education. So I, I don't know. I can only speculate, but that that's the only answer I, I have to why tax credits showed up on her radar and why she was, in fact, willing to compromise on that issue. And so next, someone else who didn't play well with others, Murray Rothbard. <laughs> yeah. And I and I start the book with Murray Rothbard. Actually, I start off with that anecdote, uh, that that thought experiment of his. So um, the thought experiment that he he gives, and for those who don't know of him, he's uh, an Austrian economist who was unlike his mentor Ludwig von Mises, um, was an anarchist. He believed that the state should have nothing to do with education, that states shouldn't exist to get into anything. Um, so I actually start off the book with a thought experiment of his because it's just the best way to explain how libertarians view education and certainly is how he viewed uh, education with the state interference. He said, imagine a news service, uh, imagine American news service. And we say that, well, because you know, everyone consuming news is for the public good. We are going to create a government news service and, and we are going to allow private news services to exist, but everyone by law has to support with their tax dollars, this public news service. And, oh, and also everyone has to consume a few hours of public news a day by law. Everyone has to do this because it's in the public interest. Um, so assume that we have that system. And you can consume private news if you want, but you have to get state permission. You have to write the the state and get permission to, to consume private news in addition to your tax-funded public news. Um, he says, you know, everyone would have a problem with this. Everyone would see that this is a gross violation of freedom of conscience, of freedom of speech, uh, of freedom to do what you'd like with your money because you're being compelled to support this organization. It's a dangerous tool for government to use for some sort of, you know, potential like thought control or indoctrination. And he says, well, if you really look at it and the structure of public education, this is pretty much the system we have in place for public ed, right? So we have tax-supported public-run schools that kids have to go to, and they can go to private schools if they want, but they have to pay tuition, and they're not going to get their money back for the public schools. Um, and we compel them by law to go to school, which essentially means you can go to the free public schools or the tuition-paid private schools. Uh, any problem you have with that news service thought experiment, you should also be having with this, uh, with the public education system. Does it make a difference that we're talking about children, though, who are either, you know, they can't they can't make decisions for themselves, or at least are if you give them the opportunity to make decisions for themselves, they'll likely make ones that they will deeply regret later, um, and and can't really. You know, with the new service, the you're talking about adults who can have the autonomy to pick and choose, but the, they're kind of at the mercy of their parents who might make bad decisions for right, them. Right, right. I think that most of the figures in the book, and certainly Rothbard, just thought that 
it made more sense if if children are going to be in some sense coerced into a choice anyway, whether it's by the family or by the state, that it makes a lot more sense for the people who are closest to them, who have the most vested interest in them, um, to kind of make those choices rather than the state making the choice. But he did also wade into, and this is true about things other than education, the question of the rights of children, which is under-theorized by libertarians to say yeah, the least, yeah, I would say. Yeah, yeah. It, it, it's a great credit to him that he did take this seriously. He wrote a really interesting essay on it. Um, in uh, The essay was called Kid Lib. I think it's in For a New Liberty. Um, his view of children's rights, I think, is problematic, but is is you know at least he addressed the issue, and it does have its own level of sophistication. So he was writing at the same time that uh, some children's rights advocates like Paul Goodman were writing books like Growing Up Absurd, and who was not a libertarian, who was not <laughs> a, a market libertarian. He was he was libertarian in more of a I guess you would say more of a socialist direction maybe, um, but he wasn't like a pro market guy. But you know, Rothbard was influenced, I think, by by some of what was in the air when people as people started talking about children's rights. So Rothbard came up with this idea that okay, so children aren't owned by their parents. If they were owned by their parents, that would kind of be a certain form of slavery that libertarians should be against. Um, but they're not entirely, um, you know, free because they do rely on their parents. They live in their parents' houses. Their parents do a lot of things for them. So the best way I think he saw to reconcile these two positions, you're not owned by your parents, but you are in some sense, um, you know, uh, subordinate to your parents, is that we might want to think of children as analogous to uh, like a sort of house guest um, who the parents choose to have in their home. And as long as the child chooses to remain in the parent's home, um, they kind of have to play by the rules of that home, just like any sort of house guest would. But he said at any time, if the child feels like they're they're being put upon, they're being abused, they're they're being made to do things that they don't want to do, uh, they can leave just like any potential house guest could leave. So he was for the right of children to run away if they wanted to find a new place to live, a new home, if they wanted to kind of start on their own. Um, he was he was in favor of that. Of course, that that becomes really problematic when you start talking about young kids because unlike you know most house guests who come to your house have the resources to be able to leave. Um, it, you know, whenever they'd like to, uh, young children, it's an open question, you know, whether they do. Right. Uh, and also when I was three, the, I, um, left my family to go to the donut shop. And, uh, how, long, and how long did that last? I uh, think I made it like three blocks. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I left home maybe when I was six or seven and I just kind of camped out in the woods until it stopped being fun. And then I went back home because I was really hungry. It's funny. It's like you're, you're trying to get Hirschman in here. It's like, I'm going to exercise my exit, right of exit because voice is clearly not working. I'm picturing Aaron with one of those like sticks with the, with the bandana, you know, where you hold over your shoulder, be like, I'm out of here, mom and dad. Like, so but I mean, you know, to Rothbard's credit, it's first of all, again, he addressed the, the the argument. He's trying to reconcile like we don't want kids to be slaves. We don't want them to be owned by their parents because anything the state can coerce your child into, you can coerce your child into. And it's really not that different. Um, so he wanted to figure out a way to kind of make that work. I don't know if it works and especially because he's an anarchist. So it gets even more problematic because he doesn't have a way to enforce it. So let's say that I see that a child who's in in the next door neighbor's house really wants to leave. Um, I, I can't call the state to, because there is no state in Rothbard's world. And I can't go over there and just take the child because for Rothbard, that would be an impermissible aggression 
on the family and the property rights and stuff like that. So it really becomes up to the child. And, and uh, yeah, I mean, when you're five or six, that's a really hard sell. On this, this house guest analogy, um, what's his view on the, the flip side of it? That the house guest can choose to leave at any time. So the, the kid can choose to leave at any time. But also the the host can choose to kick the house guest out at any time. So yeah. does he have views on kind of parental obligations to their children? He does. And um, unfortunately, his position, uh, because I think it's consistent with his position overall also, is that the parent has no positive obligations to the child. Now, I don't think he believes that most parents would just hear that and be like, oh, cool, I can stop feeding my kids. Um, I think he believes that that parental love will kind of win the day, um, that all but a few parents will decide to stop, you know, um, you know feeding their kids or kick them out or whatever. But um yeah, it's but it is it is problematic because you can, you know, there's certainly strong arguments to be made that if you have a child and especially if it's your choice to have a child that at some point you you therefore owe uh your child certain things that would come to them just by virtue of you bringing them into existence. The 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 writer that I should point out is actually I think a little bit more sophisticated at least from my point of view on this is another character in my book, John Holt. Uh, who's in a later chapter. Now, I don't mention Holt's view on children's rights in the book, but he actually wrote an entire book on on children's rights that's really sophisticated. It's called Escape from Childhood. And Holt believed that he wasn't a libertarian in any market, pro-market sense. He did believe that there should be a state. And his position is kind of similar to Rothbard's, but with the benefit of having a state that can protect the child's rights. So he believes that if a child wants to live on their own, they should be able to. But he believes that what they can do is somehow get the state involved. So like a child protective services, maybe the child can find a way to get them involved or a neighbor could get find a way to get them involved. And then from there, the child could live on their own. And I believe he also suggests that the child should have the right to receive, if they'd like to, a guaranteed basic income so that they can kind of you know figure out a way to support themselves or find another family to live with or something like that. But you know, unlike Rothbard, Holt has a state that he can appeal to and say, well, the state can actually get involved and can protect the child's rights against the parents. Uh, and he didn't think that most children would en masse decide to move out on their own. Uh, he felt like it's it's a pretty sweet deal for kids to to kind of live on the, to live at, at home because you get everything paid for, everything taken care of. But he did think that there would be kids who maybe were abused, didn't come from great households, who would actually choose to either live on their own or try to find some other family they can live with or something like that. But I think I think Holt's views are, are are pretty sophisticated on children's rights. Well, you bring up Holt and Goodman and the other people that that were theorizing education from a different ideological standpoint. And it kind of seems to me you have sort of 60s style re, reinventing theories of parenting and kind of a more yeah. hippie direction. Yeah. And of course, yeah. Rothbard sees that and as he did in many parts of the at different times in his career, he's like, oh, yeah. no, now we need to align with the left. So that, yeah, that was yeah. before he decided he needed to align with the paleoconservatives like 20 years later. But at that time, he's like, we need to align with the left on this stuff. We're on the same page. And that did not seem to be true. <laughs> Ultimately, he 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 dropped a lot of names on the left. He talked about, look, my views are really similar to, you know, Paul Goodman's views. My views are really similar to Ivan Illich's views. My, you know, um, the interesting thing, and I think I say this at the end of the chapter, is that when you look at the people who he names on the new left, it says, you know, I'm kind of like these guys. Um, none of them really mentioned him at all. 
I don't know what to make of that, but it, it's kind of interesting uh, because he kind of really wanted to align with this new left view, especially on children's rights and educational issues. Um, but none of the people he mentions really seem to want to align so much with him. I think uh, I think Jennifer Burns in in uh, an interview I saw she wrote, she was the one who wrote the uh, biography of Ayn Rand, Goddess of the Market. I think she said something to the effect of um, he kind of seemed to write himself into a lot of the history <laughs> of these things that there really wasn't a lot of evidence coming from other folks but him and his his friends that that he was really a a figure in a lot of the things that he had mentioned. I I don't know if that's true, but I know I came across that when I was researching the book and that aligned with what I had seen with his writings on education. Now, the next one, we talked about two people who don't necessarily play well with others, Rand and Rothbard. But now you have Milton Friedman and Rose, of course, who who yeah, yeah. did a little bit better, but took some costs yeah. for it. I, at the very beginning of your chapter on, on the Friedmans, you cite an interview with him that was uh, Brian Doherty wrote for Reason Magazine in 1995, yeah. where he was asked, Milton Friedman was asked about Murray Rothbard. He said, I had some contact with Murray early on, but very little contact with him overall. Partly this is because whenever he's had the chance, he's been nasty to me in my work, mm -hmm. <laughs> which I think yeah. is interesting. And then yeah. on Rand, uh, he said, she was utterly intolerant and dogmatic person who did a great deal of good, but I could never feel comfortable with her. So he kind of tried to chart a middle road here. I mean, the reason he and Rand and he and Rothbard didn't play well together beside the respective temperaments of everyone involved was that he was um, kind of a consequentialist. I mean, he was really kind of an economist in the sense that most of us think of today, where it's really about figuring out what policies work best for the general good or whatever that is, rather than starting from some kind of controversial ideological principle and going from there. So he he didn't really talk about you know individual rights in the same way that um, – Rothbard or Rand did. Not that he was against individual rights, but it, it was more like, look, I'm trying to figure out the positions that are going to work best for everyone involved on some sort of utilitarian calculus. Uh, individual rights, property rights, things like that are justified insofar as they serve that purpose. And he's the most well-known advocate of vouchers. I think absolutely. a lot of people learned about vouchers from him. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And one of the interesting things is that, you know, he... When I was thinking about this book on libertarianism and, and market libertarianism, um, you know, libertarians overall haven't had a huge impact on the school choice debates, but they did produce the guy who's been the most, probably the single most well-known advocate of school choice, at least in the United States, if not the world. So it's um, that right there is an argument that that they've had some importance. It you mentioned we talked about tax credits earlier yeah. with people. Why the move from tax credits to vouchers? Yeah, well, so the difference for those who don't know are, are, is that tax credits is really about um, the state giving you money only after the fact, right? So you spend money on tuition, you send in your tax receipts during tax time, you get that money back. You would get a tax credit if you spent more than you than you paid in taxes. Vouchers work a little bit differently. Vouchers are the, the state collects tax money first, then divides it up by basically by child. And then every family gets the amount of money per child that it would that, you know, an equal amount of money per child. Um, I don't think uh, Friedman really addressed why he preferred vouchers to tax credits. Um, I, I I think that he had toyed with the idea of some sort of voucher system in other cases and kind of education just came up and he just applied those principles. 
to education, but I don't think there was any like reason he gave for why he supported vouchers over tax credits. I can think of some reasons why it would make sense to support vouchers over tax credits. The first being that oftentimes, especially families that are more vulnerable economically, might need that money before they can actually pay tuition. Um, so I think there was, you know, uh, some faith with Chadorov and Rand that families could scrape together together money to give tuition and then kind of get the tax rebate afterwards. Whereas I think, you know, there's a case to be made that it actually might be better for some families to get that money first and then spend it um, afterwards. But Friedman was, as an economist, as a consequentialist, as you said, he, uh, in Capitalism and Freedom, he talks about positive externalities or yeah. neighborhood effects is right. the words he uses, uh, right. endorsing a fairly a view of education as like not as almost a public good or or have at least so many positive externalities that right. the state should right. be subsidizing it. But he also is not into for profit in at least in the early days. But then right. he changes. I find this to be probably yeah. my favorite part of the book is the changing from what he believed in sixty two to what he believed in free to choose and 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 thereafter yeah. about yeah. how much the government should actually be involved in this. Yeah. So in in the earlier book, you're right. A lot of his justification for um, state spending was that everyone should get a voucher. Um, be, I think I, it was roughly of a similar amount too. Everyone should get a voucher of a similar amount because education has positive externalities. So when everyone is educated, everyone else benefits, uh, and when no one is educated, everyone else pays certain costs, whether they're, you know, crime enforcement costs or, or whatever. Um, so his argument was really that, you know, everyone should get a certain voucher so that everyone can afford uh, education because it benefits everyone else that everyone gets education. And so he was influenced by E.G. West, who was a uh, British economist, most famous for a book called Education in the State. And in that book, um, West looked at both the, the English scene and the American scene and said, really, it's honestly, historically, it's been the case that most people have been able to and willing to afford education privately, even if they don't get state support for it. It's really the only the very poor who have had a problem, uh, you know, dry, scraping together the money to, to do education. So by the time, um, you know, what, 15 so years later, I think, uh, by the time uh, Free to Choose comes out, um, the Freedmans have kind of changed their position because they they believe, influenced by West, that the majority of people, if they weren't given a voucher, would probably still be able to, to scrape together the money to to send their kids to school. Um, and it really, it's only the very poor that would really need the help. So Friedman, like all the other liber uh, market libertarians, really wanted to minimize the state's involvement to whatever was n absolutely necessary. And if it's not necessary to support middle class families with a voucher then don't do it because that's going to lead to a slippery slope. So it really may just be the very poor. And that's what that that's what he endorsed. And finally, to kind of kind of works within the Friedman paradigm, um, it's your your last thinker, Myron Lieberman, who, who wrote a lot for Cato, uh, who, who has an important difference with Friedman on the for-profit, non-profit thing, but also because he's one of my favorites. I've, I've enjoyed him for years, but Good. has such an interesting backstory of how yeah. he how – because he, you cite his first book uh, and then at some point in between that and his, his book where he attacks public education, he mm -hmm. kind of seems to have some sort of road to Damascus moment. Yeah. So uh, he's – you know, you probably know Trevor because you've been reading him. He's like the the best 
libertarian critic of education that nobody's ever heard of. Exactly. At yes. least in the libertarian community. So um so he's a guy who started off his his career um as a teacher and then he moved to being a negotiator for of contracts between labor unions and governments. And at some point it became clear to him that these contracts had some clauses in them that were just questionable if we're talking about education producing value for consumers. Uh, it seemed like a lot of the contracts benefited unions. A lot of them benefited unions and the city together at the expense of, um, you know, uh, at the expense of consumers. And um, he started really thinking about, well, why is that? And he read some economics and that led him to public choice economics, particularly, although he read Friedman as well. And the whole idea that, um, you know, when when unions and and cities negotiate and they have, you know, kind of a stranglehold on a particular institution, it's pretty rational that they will do what's best for the, for themselves and the institution, uh, whether or not that's necessarily good for the users of the institution. Um, not because they're evil, not because they're bad, but because they're self-interested people like, like everyone else. So he really got into James Buchanan and Manker Olson, um, and kind of the theory of the concentrated benefits that the union and the and the school system have and the dispersed costs. So people in general won't be tr trustworthy to kind of vote for to improve schools to benefit them. But since school districts have a really strong interest in schools, they're going to show up to the polls and they're going to really control uh, a lot of those debates. And the only – and he also is sort of adamant that the only real way to – get the kind of innovation and cost cutting that you can get in education is to have profit schools be a significant part of it. Yeah, he emphasized that. He was the only one of the figures that I reviewed um, who really emphasized it. I'm I'm quite sure that people like Rothbard and Rand would not have uh, wouldn't have shied away from supporting pro you know for profit schools. I'm pretty sure that was part of their vision too. But Lieberman said so very specifically. He said, "Look, it, you know the problem with voucher systems that that he was kind of starting to see come around, come down the pike, and especially charters. He hated charters. Uh, the problem is that they don't give a significant amount of room for for profits operating in truly market based situations. And the reason he thought that for profits were necessary is that if you want companies to invest in significant research and development, if you want them to scale uh, rapidly and, and well, uh, nonprofits can't do that job because they don't earn a, a profit that they can then reinvest into that business. Um, but for-profits can. Why do people react so negatively to that line of argument? Like they, just the very thought of for-profit educational institutions seems to creep out a lot of people and set a lot of people off in a way that they don't get upset about for profit in oh yeah basically yeah. anywhere else grocery stores yeah it, it's it's just right it's one of the 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 points that a lot of critics you know Diane Ravitch Deborah Meyer a, a lot of critics of public education private education like they can't wait to use the word for profit because it just scares people um this is it's interesting because at least so my read of the history is that when public schools were starting to come about in the early 1800s, 1830s, thereabouts, there, the argument against um, the the argument for public education, no one ever used the argument of there's something you know icky or gross or morally problematic about people paying for education. Nobody said that. Um, the arguments for public education were things like, we want to make sure that everyone can be educated to the same quality, and we want to make sure that everyone can be educated in the same spaces so there aren't like these rich schools and poor schools. 
Uh, but no one ever said it's problematic for people to pay for education. Uh, like I had mentioned earlier, in fact, public education, public schools for a long time were supported in large part by what we call rate bills or private tuition. So even in the early years of public education, you had kids and families paying and nobody had a problem with that. Um, I don't know. I think what's happened is we've gotten used to um, public schools. We've gotten used to school being a government institution that you don't have to pay for in the same way, like a direct payment where you pay for service. Um, you pay through the back door, which is easy to kind of forget about, right? You pay your taxes and then you forget uh, that, that it's really, you know, you're still paying for that service. Um, so I think we've just gotten used to this is a thing you don't pay for. Uh, this is a thing and, and that becomes this is a thing that it's wrong to pay for, that it's wrong to have to pay for. Well, but that's slightly – I mean that's on the that's on the consumer side, that it's it's wrong to have to pay for it. But But there seems to be a very strong attitude among many who oppose markets and education that there's a corrupting influence to making a profit off of education, that the very existence of the profit motive will cause these schools to do right, bad right, things. Right, right. Yeah, that's that's a hard one. I've never really been able to kind of um, sympathize with that argument, but it it's tough because what I would say in response is that there's a lot of money that's flowing through the public system. A lot of people are getting paid in the public system. Just because no one's making a profit, meaning there are no stakeholders who expect returns on an investment, uh, doesn't mean that a lot of people aren't getting paid for that service. Uh, it just means that it's coming directly out of the budgets. Um, and I don't know – yeah, I don't know what the difference is. I don't know what the difference is that people have in their head between expecting a return on your investment as profit versus getting paid out of these budgets. Like you're still getting paid. Um, so if there's, a, if there's a corrupting influence in the private system, uh, you could just as easily argue there's a corrupting influence in the public system. I think it's just that we've gotten used to it. Like I said before, I think it's just that we've gotten used to this idea that, okay, well, you know, money isn't directly changing hands in this in this system and therefore there's something wrong about that. I wonder if there's partly a connection to if, – if there's profit to be made, then profit is what we will want to make. And so if, if, I'm, if I'm a teacher who I'm – you know, because yes, teachers contrary to what many people will tell you, public school teachers are actually paid – quite well, especially if you factor in like the level of the benefits that they receive um, and that they get summers off. But so they're they're earning money, but their money is to some extent divorced from how much money they're bringing in, right? And so their advancement then is either based, I mean, it's largely based on seniority, but it's like it's they they can just set about doing their job and their values are to educate kids to the best of their ability. And so they're in the classroom and they can do that. But if you introduce a profit motive, then the incentive either to them as individuals or, you know, from on high becomes your job is to, yes, I mean, we want to educate kids because that's why people send their kids to our school and, you know, so the more they think they're getting educated. But if you can find ways to do things to cut corners or manipulate to drive up that profit margin, that becomes a motivation now that wasn't present under the nonprofit setup. I'm thinking about rainmaker teachers. Yeah. You can bring in as many kids as we you know, fill up the class. Yeah. I can see that. I can see that. It's, it's, uh, to add to that, I, it's 
It's interesting too because you talk about for profit and healthcare, and people say we're going to be harvesting the organs of poor people or something, or, you know, just willfully taking away healthcare from them. But if you're kind of warehousing kids and sort of putting them into huge sort of assembly line situations, which is what for profit might do, I'm not sure, uh, in order to educate them, um, it's hard to imagine to me. What would be totally wrong with that, unless you have some of your some Albert, some J Albert Albert J Knock in you that says, "Oh, the for profit's going to make them just to have a class about you know uh, reality television and all this trashy stuff because that's what pe- for- Fortnite will be half the day." Yes, because that's what the kids want. They're going to learn Fortnite and Minecraft, and then come home and, and they're not going to be educated. And that's what for profit will bring. Yeah, I guess it depends on what you think is going to get you the best chance of of profit. I I I don't know if I put it in the book, but there was a quote that I ran across from Myron Lieberman that sticks out to me. It went something like this: "Those who worry um, about efficiency and like the dangers of making schools efficient have never had to deal with budgets, <laughs> like have never had to deal with like a company where you have to manage the costs versus the expenditures." <laughs> Um, you know, efficiency is actually a good thing and it doesn't just mean lowering costs. So when I hear people, um, in education spaces talk about how, you know, we can't worry about efficiency. Um, they always talk of efficiency only as lowering the costs, um, and not, and not getting that more output for less input. Yeah. Which, which of course, Lieberman points out that one of the factors in bureaucracy seems to put seems to be less output for more input uh, as you grow all these things together. So, can we synthesize anything from from these seven thinkers? And we've also brought up some of the people like John Holt, who also wrote about education. Or maybe the point is not to synthesize, but is there some sort of overall lesson we can we can learn from this? Well, I think the lesson that I would like people to take away from it, which is one of the reasons I actually started researching this book, is it's fascinating how many ways there are to come at a school choice position. So, you know, Ayn Rand and Murray Rothbard came at a school choice position really based on like a strong belief in natural rights. And Frank Chodorov was really enamored with the idea of pluralism, right? So he came to school choice because he thought it would really foster a really pluralistic environment where people can go to the schools that best suit them. And, you know, Milton Friedman did it under a more utilitarian calculus and Myron Lieberman did it for a public choice reason. You know, states are just even the best well-meaning states are plagued by bad incentives in a way that he argues private uh, private companies wouldn't be. So I think to me, you know, again, in education spaces, I see a lot of folks talking about school choice as if it's like this one thing. It's motivated by a desire to segregate the rich from the poor. And it's motivated by, you know, the desire to kind of like enrich capitalists. And it's motivated by a corporatist kind of neoliberal agenda. And I guess the figures in this book don't really agree on the rationales for it. They agree on the basic position and they disagree on how to implement that position, like what level of government is involved. Uh, But they completely disagree about um, the justification for it and what, what the value is of it. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy Free Thoughts, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or in your favorite podcast app. Free Thoughts is produced by Tess Terrible and Landry Ayers. To learn more, visit us on the web at www.libertarianism.org.